The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. If you would, please turn with me to the 18th Psalm. We're going to be in verses 20 through 36. Uh, I'm Pastor Vince. If you don't know that, I do most of the Bible teaching around here, and uh, I'm honored to have that privilege tonight. Uh, The verses from this week, uh, we're going to be in in just these 20 through 36, but uh, this psalm has 50 verses in it, so we're taking four weeks to make it through all 50, and uh, we've had fun thus far. We'll keep doing that. The verses from this week are going to throw us headfirst uh, into the deep end of theological and doctrinal thought. Now, so I'm hoping, in light of that, that you came prepared to think hard and, and work our way through this text. Now, if you just heard me say that and you're intimidated by the thought of wrestling through deep and, and difficult concepts, let me offer you this calming thought. Our goal tonight is not going to be to try to solve a mystery but to resolve by faith that it is okay for the mystery to remain. So that's where we're headed. Now, for those of you who are made nervous by that statement that I just made, uh, let me assure you that I am tempted to be as well. Okay, so for for those of us who favor the more logical and analytical end of the personality spectrum, to cease from rationalizing in a humble acknowledgement that our desire for all things to have tidy answers is not an honest possibility. It can be a bit unnerving for some of us. But this is the exact place we must arrive if we're going to avoid the error of believing that all God is and does and says can be contained within the bounds of human logic. And there's nobody tonight who's going to be immune to the painful stretch of where we're headed. So here's what I want everyone to do. I want you to find someone near you right now, okay? This is serious. I'm watching. Find someone near you, and I want you to look them right in the eyes. Everyone lock eyes with somebody right now. I'm going to wait till everyone's looking into somebody else's eyes, okay? Everyone got eyes you're locked on? Now here's what I want you to say to them. Don't worry. It's going to be okay. Tell them that right now. Don't worry. It's going to be okay. Okay. Now that I made sure you're awake by putting you through that sufficiently awkward exercise. Let's read these verses together, okay? I needed you awake, so now I know you are. Some of you, your heart is pout, you're on the edge of a panic attack right now because I just made you lock eyes with somebody and say something. So I know, I know what I did. It was on purpose, okay? So here we are, Psalm 18, starting in verse 20. We're going to go to verse 36. The Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness. Remember, it's David that wrote this psalm. According to the cleanness of my hands, he has recompensed me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his ordinances were before me, and I did not put away his statutes from me. I was also blameless with him, and I kept myself from iniquity. Therefore, the Lord has recompensed me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in his eyes." With the kind, you show yourself kind. With the blameless, you show yourself blameless. With the pure, you show yourself pure. And with the crooked, you show yourself astute. For you, have, for you save an afflicted people, but haughty eyes you abase. For you light my lamp. The Lord my God illumines my darkness. For by you I can run upon a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. 
As for God, his way is blameless. The word of the Lord is tried. He is a shield to all who take refuge in him. For who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? The God who girds me with strength and makes my way blameless. He makes my feet like hind's feet and sets me upon my high places. He trains my hands for battle so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You've also given me the shield of your salvation and your right hand upholds me and your gentleness makes me great. You enlarge my steps under me and my feet have not slipped. Praise God for his word. Amen. So there is a lot here, okay, to be sure, but a fair summary of these verses is found in the last half of verse 36, where David says, my feet have not slipped, okay? That's a good summary of all that he's talking about in these 16 verses. And by this, when he says, my feet have not slipped, he means they haven't slipped from the path of righteousness and the plan that God has for him. But... The question that arises from these verses is, who is responsible for this lack of slipping? Okay, I'm going to read you two sets of these verses again. First, 21 through 24. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all of his ordinances, all of his ordinances were before me, and I did not put away his statutes from me. I was also blameless with him, and I kept myself from my iniquity. Therefore, the Lord has recompensed me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in his eyes. Do you guys key in on the words I was emphasizing there? There's a lot of, I did this, my, right? Giving the idea that it's by his power almost, okay? So, we got that. Now, verses 30 through 36. As for God, his way is blameless. The word of the Lord is tried. He is a shield to all who take refuge in him. For who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? The God who... The God who girds me with strength and makes, and makes my way blameless. He makes my feet like hind's feet and sets me upon my high places. He trains my hands for battle so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You've also given me the shield of your salvation and your right hand upholds me and your gentleness makes me great. You enlarge my steps under me and my feet have not slipped. Hmm. That's interesting. We only read 16 verses. Right here, smashed together, we have seeming opposites. So, is it David or God who's responsible for him not slipping? Now, before we dig into that, let's move one obstacle out of the way. Because you might read this and say, well, neither, because David did slip, right? We could just mention the name Bathsheba, and that would make it pretty obvious, right? Okay? Uh, but remember that this psalm is likely taking a wide-angle view of David's life, taking into account his failures, but also his true repentance, okay? And the fact that though imperfect, he was a man after God's own heart, understood the mercy of God and the grace of God and found forgiveness in that, okay? So the actual answer to who is responsible for the lack of slipping from God's path, whether it's David or God that's responsible— it brings us to one of the most profound, difficult, historically divisive topics in the history of the church. The question is, oftentimes framed as God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. Now it's likely, this question of 
David and God and who's responsible for his feet not slipping, it's likely that you lean towards a certain answer based on a variety of factors. Factors like personal experience, what you've studied, maybe how you've been taught. And the reality is, people have really strong opinions about this. And there has been much disunity throughout history as followers of Jesus have grappled with it. Now, the truth is, in order to boil this down to an either-or answer, we have to ignore half of what David said here and much of what God has revealed elsewhere in his word. Let me give you just one example. I'm going to read you two passages from the New Testament. Hebrews 13.5 says, Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. You keep your life free from the love of money. 1 Corinthians 1.8 says, Jesus will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Hmm. Which one do I listen to? <laughs> right? I told you this was, I told you we're going to make some gears grind in your brain today. That's, that's why I made you look at each other and get all nervous so you're awake for this, okay? So one verse, we're told we keep our life free from the love of money as if our volitional effort or the exertion of our will is involved. And then we're told in another verse, it's Jesus who will sustain us. So which is it? Let's look at two elements of who God is to, to begin to try to hone this down, okay? So first of all, God is completely sovereign as king. I'm going to give you a few verses to back up that statement. Ephesians 1.11 says, God works all things according to the counsel of his will. Psalm 115 verse 3 says, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Job 42 verse 2 says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Proverbs 16.33, moving to something that we would probably consider chance, the lot is cast into the lap. It's like throwing dice, basically, or drawing straws. The, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. That's detailed. But we also, so we have God's sovereignty. We also have God as king, but we also have God as judge of all the earth who holds mankind responsible for our choices. Let me say this before I go any farther. I told you that this has been debated throughout history. Churches have split. Denominations have formed. Uh, big fights, okay? By, with lots of people smarter than probably anybody in this room in terms of theology, okay? So we need to understand that tonight, right, if, if this was a can of coffee, you know, like there's the out lid and then there's the little aluminum lid on the inside that keeps it fresh. Oh, you hipsters get the beans. You don't know what I'm talking about. So us... <laughs> Us uh, more common folk, when we buy coffee, it's already ground, and uh, there's this foil thing on the inside that keeps it fresh. So tonight, we're going to pop that outer lid off, but we're not even going to get to look at the grounds, okay? So just understand, this is a primer to this subject. This is a, basically, it's just getting us to think about it, uh, rejoice in some of the basic elements around it, but there are books upon books upon books written <laughs> on this, okay? So I just want to make sure you know you're not going to get a full dealing with all that could be said about this tonight. So we saw the verses that lay out God as king and sovereign, but he's also judge of all the earth, who holds mankind responsible for our choices. Ecclesiastes 12, verse 14 says, For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. 
1 Peter 4, verse 5, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. 2 Timothy 4, 1, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing in his kingdom. Okay, so do you see the problem yet? The apparent problem? How can this be? How can God sovereignly declare all that happens according to the counsel of his will and leave intact our ability to make a choice? How can he hold us responsible for our actions if he's already determined all that will come to pass? A succinct answer to this question that you won't like (laughs) is that it's outside of our pay grade and it's not wise to be asking That's according to Paul. Romans 9, starting in verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this? Will it? How many of you are thrilled with that answer from the Lord? (laughs) I am, because I'm really humble. Okay. I'm sure you do. Okay. Here's what we need to see, though. There is a difference in seeking to understand versus hurling accusations toward God. It is not sinful for us to think through these things as a child asking humble questions of their father, but it is very sinful to ask these questions as if we are a judge questioning a suspect. You with me on that? Amen. Psalm 18 brings this into view, this idea, this kind of conundrum, from the perspective of staying out of sin and folly, right? That's what David's big summary was, my feet have not slipped. But it gets even harder when we consider the other side of the coin, okay? Let me read you an excerpt from an article to to kind of frame out what I mean here. Here are a few quotes from two accounts. As you read them, consider with me who's responsible for David's sinful census, God, Satan, or David. Okay, So David takes a census, it's sinful, but listen to these scriptures from two different accounts of the same thing. 2 Samuel 24, verse 1, again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, go number Israel and Judah. Okay, got that one? God incited David. 1 Chronicles 21.1, then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. God, we got Satan involved. 2 Samuel 24.10, but David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. So we see David's perspective. 1 Chronicles 21, 7 and 8. But God was displeased with this thing, and he struck Israel. And David said to God, I've sinned greatly in that I have done this thing. But now please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have acted very foolishly. 2 Samuel informs us that God incited David to take the census. 1 Chronicles tells us that Satan incited David. And in both accounts, David takes full responsibility for his folly. It's confusing to say the least. The ultimate question I pondered is this one. If God incited David through the means of Satan because he was upset with the nation of Israel, then is God the ultimate cause for David's sinful actions? Now, we know that God is holy and only good. And so he cannot cause, he cannot be the cause or the author of evil. 
But to read the verses we just read and to hold that truth together is boggling to our finite human minds. And I'm hoping that you can take comfort in the fact that we are not the first to ponder these things. Okay, I'm going to read you an excerpt from something called the Belgic Confession. It was written in 1561, primarily by a Reformed preacher named Guido, which I think is awesome, just in and of itself. <laughs> uh, and Guido was martyred in 1567. So he wrote this in 1561, died for the faith, 1567. It was written for the purpose of doctrinal unification, but also to show King Philip II of Spain who, by the way, was trying to stamp out all churches uh, who were non-Catholic in his territory. They, the, part of the point of the Belgic Confession was to show him that the Protestant church affirmed the ancient creeds and was willing to submit to the king unless his decrees were contrary to God's word. So this is the thrust of where the Belgic Confession came from. Here's just a small excerpt from it that pertains to our discussion this evening. We believe that the same God after he had created all things, did not forsake them or give them up to fortune or chance, but that he rules and governs them according to his holy will, so that nothing happens in this world without his appointment. Nevertheless, God neither is the author of nor can be charged with the sins which are committed. For his power and goodness are so great and incomprehensible that he orders and executes his work in the most excellent and just manner even then when devils and wicked men act unjustly. So God is completely omnipotent and sovereign and has declared all that has and will happen, and yet our choices matter and we are held accountable for them. Now here, right here, we reach the point in the journey where we either doubt or we worship. We bow in reverence or we shake our fists in rebellion. This is the place we must acknowledge the reality of something commonly referred to as antinomy. It is an offense to the Western mind that is geared towards linear logic. Those that were alive in the time of, of reading the Bible, or writing the Bible rather, would have had less trouble with it just because of the way they were trained to think. The Enlightenment affected a lot about the way we string thoughts together, how we think about logic. But J.I. Packer summarizes what antinomy is briefly in this quote. We need to know this. We need to understand this. An antinomy exists when a pair of principles stand side by side, seemingly irreconcilable, yet both undeniable. There are solid reasons for believing each of them. Each rests on clear and solid evidence, but it is a mystery to know how they can be squared with each other. You see that each must be true on its own, but you do not see how they can both be true together. Two seemingly incompatible positions must be held together, and both must be treated as true. Such a necessity scandalizes our tidy minds, no doubt. But there is no help for it if we are to be loyal to the facts. What he's saying, what he's pointing out, is that the Bible clearly teaches that God is sovereign, completely omnipotent, is declared all by the counsel of his will, and yet our will is intact, our volition is intact, and we are held accountable for what we do.
Though it is impossible for us to understand how God's complete sovereignty and our responsibility can coexist rationally, we must land where the scriptures land on this issue. I'm going to read you another short excerpt to help us think of this another way. What the Bible does is to assert both truths side by side in the strongest and most unambiguous terms as two ultimate facts. This, therefore, is the position we must take in our own thinking. Charles Spurgeon was once asked if he could reconcile these two truths to each other. I wouldn't try, he replied. I never reconcile friends. Friends? Yes, friends. This is the point that we have to grasp. In the Bible, divine sovereignty and human responsibility are not enemies. They are not uneasy neighbors. They are not in an endless state of cold war with each other. They are friends, and they work together. Now, I imagine that some of you at this point feel the heat and pressure building from from the grinding of gears in your mind. And that may push you to ask, with perhaps even a bit of a sassy attitude, why does this matter? This seems real deep, and I don't know how much this can even really apply. But friends, let us not be fools. This affects so much. If we lean away from the dual reality of God's omnipotent rule and the fact that by his sovereign decree, our choices still matter, we will end up having a skewed view of everything. Of everything. This affects everything. Well, give me some examples. I came prepared. Thank you for asking. Let's think about prayer. If you ignore our responsibility and you overemphasize God's sovereignty, you could be tempted not to pray because, well, God's already determined everything that's going to happen. What point is there? And yet, God has invited and commanded us to pray. It makes clear that our prayers have an effect on outcomes. If you're sick, go to the elders, have them anoint you with oil and pray. And what? You'll be healed. Just one example. First one that came to my mind. Didn't have that written down. But you can go all through the scriptures and see examples of God's invitation for us to pray. Bring your prayers and petitions, right? Amen. And makes, if it doesn't matter, then, then God's really put a pony show on here in the Word, hasn't he? I know this doesn't make sense in our minds, but it does in God's, and that's what matters. Let's talk about salvation. The Scriptures talk about us being dead in our trespasses and sins. Absolutely. And so many will say, well, dead men have no part in being made alive. But the Bible also talks about salvation as a gift. The knob's over here. There it is. Somehow, before the foundations of the earth by God's sovereign decree, this little thing was supposed to move in the middle of this sermon. I don't know why. The the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. (laughs) Amen. I'm going to start that over. Let's think about salvation together, okay? The scriptures talk about us being dead in our trespasses and sins, and so many will say, dead men have no part in being made alive. Agreed. But the Bible also talks about salvation as a gift that is to be received 
by faith, something a dead person can't do. So, in humility, we need to understand that how God's election and foreknowledge and omnipotence and love and mercy all come together to accomplish the salvation of sinners is not as clear as we'd like. There's parts of the inner working of God's mind and how he did all this before the foundation of the world that is just above what we can grasp a hold of. And again, every time we encounter one of these things, we, can, we, we basically have a choice. I'm either going to worship my intellect and the, what logic can bring me to, or I'm going to worship God who I believe supersedes those things. Even though the details are maybe not as clear as we'd like, we can, stay, we can take a step back and we can rejoice in this. Here's what we do know. All who believe that Jesus died upon the cross and rose from the grave, all who call upon the name of the Lord, acknowledging that they are imperfect and unable to save themselves, if they will ask Jesus to be their Savior, they will not be turned away. That has been made clear and is in no uncertain terms. Praise God. I thought you'd be more excited about that than you are. That's the reason I'm standing here today. That's the reason I have hope in this life and for eternity. It's because Jesus saves sinners, man. Hallelujah. Think about evangelism. To overemphasize God's sovereignty and ignore our responsibility could lead people to be lazy in evangelism, coming to the conclusion that it doesn't matter what I do. God's going to save who he's going to save. But if that is the case, then why the Great Commission? Why is the last thing Jesus said, go, make disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teach them to obey all that I commanded, and I'll be with you to the end of the age. Even in that, we see Jesus laying upon us personal responsibility, but promising us the support of his sovereignty. Go, I'm with you. If we overemphasize our responsibility and forget God's sovereignty, we could foolishly take the weight of people's salvation upon ourselves. We could even be tempted to coerce or manipulate them in a frantic attempt to save them ourselves, which of course is something that will never happen because without God's mighty hand moving upon their heart, without the working of the Holy Spirit, men and women are not saved. It's God's work. But you said we play a part, but God does it. But I know, I know, it's okay. It's all right. It's like a square peg, round hole. You're all right. We're okay. Amen. I just gave you a few. We could run down every facet of our life and faith, and we will see that trying to make these two truths square with each other in a way that will satisfy our finite minds will lead to error and ultimately to sin. I need it to make sense. So in order to do that, in order to force the, the process of, of rational, logical, i got to make this thing have a bow on it that, okay, now it's clean. It'll always lead to error and sin. The intersection and the outworking of God's sovereignty and our responsibility belongs in the realm of mystery. And we have to be okay with that. Now you might be thinking, well, okay, I hear you, but 
I can't embrace mystery. There, there must be a logical explanation. Well, friend, until that prideful position is abandoned, you cannot truly answer the call to follow Jesus. You can't. Because this question we're discussing today is not the only thing in which God has told us all we need to know, but all, not all that we wish he would. And this is part of his answer in Romans 9. It's not that God just likes keeping secrets from us. There are things we are not able to understand. Are you okay saying that about yourself? There's some stuff I can't understand. Why don't you say that out loud and let your own ears hear your mouth say it. Let me hear you. Go ahead. There's things I can't understand. Mmm, doesn't that sound good? Whoo, there's some freedom right there. Amen. This is why we walk by faith and not by sight. But it is not only on the question of sovereignty and responsibility that we have to do this. I made a pretty big statement earlier. If we, if we, can't, if we can't rest in, in, in the reality that some things God is and does and says belongs in mystery, we can't be a follower of Jesus. Why am I saying that? Well, there's, it's not just this sovereignty responsibility thing that is above our ability to understand, right? Let's just think of some other possibilities. The Trinity, for example. How is it that God is three co-equal, co-eternal, co-powerful persons existing within one God? Go ahead. You can give me the egg analogy. You can give me all the stuff I've tried to give my kids to make it somehow make some kind of sense that all pitifully fall short when you really think about it. Because it's like the scriptures have clearly said God the Father is God. Jesus the Son is God. The Holy Spirit is God. Right? Does not compute. What about the hypostatic union? The fact that Jesus... The eternal one who was there before the foundations of the world somehow took on human flesh without losing his deity and was 100% man and 100% God and has returned to the Father with a glorified body. The hypostatic union. Any, anybody, you, you can like say, I can totally lay that out. Give me a chalkboard. I can explain to you exactly how that works and leave no mystery. If that's you, I will sit down right now long enough for you to come do that, embarrass yourself, and then I will come back up. Anybody? Any takers? I didn't think so. Let's just think about the crown jewel of our faith, the gospel. This is from Acts. Peter's thrashing people again. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. The death of Jesus was God's plan. And yet, right here, those who murdered him are held to account. But, I know. Remember antinomy? This is true, and this is true. Why? Because God said so. That's why this is by faith. We're not saved by logic, friends. We're not saved by logic, <laughs> you know, 
Grace through faith in Christ alone. It's, it's not grace through logic in Christ alone. It's faith. It's not just the events even that are that defy logic, but the implication of Christ's death and resurrection defy logic. Think about this. This, this is why the Bible says plainly that the gospel is foolishness to the unbelieving. In what, in what paradigm does it make sense for us to be the crime committers and for Jesus, the innocent one, to pay the price? It defies logic. How does it even work that that, that is the case, that Jesus, once for all sacrifice, could, could wipe out the sins of all of us past, present, and future? How does that work? Can you, chalkboard's open again. I know I don't have a chalkboard up here. I get one. If you can explain that to me with all, in all the details and leave no mystery in how the gospel itself even works, what am I doing? What am I doing? I'm saying, friends, if you can't leave God's sovereignty and our responsibility in the mystery bucket because you, you just don't think mystery is a part of the deal, everything needs to rationally line up. I need to be able to logically explain all the things about God and about my faith. And I'm not advocating for some kind of head in the sand. We don't ever think about our faith. We don't ever use the minds God gave us. Peter said to always be ready with a defense for the hope that is in you. Absolutely. We study, we think, we pray, we read, we learn, all the way up until we get to the point where we realize this is as far as this intellect God gave me can take me. And this point right here is where I decide either I will bow in reverence to this God far beyond my understanding or I will worship myself, my own intellect, or the intellect of others. Every thinking person of faith is going to come to this point sometime. So for some of you, we, we just jumped on a, on, on a well-worn merry-go-round that you've ridden many times. For some of you, I just took your hand and, and led you to this thing for the first time, and you're feeling dizzy. I'm with you. As a younger man, as I begin to encounter many of these things, I, I believe I drove myself almost to the, the edge of insanity over a six-month period, trying to make it square. And then God in his great mercy came and freed me from that. In, in particular, in, in just communicating to me the idea that I don't know is sometimes a really godly answer. Amen. The gospel isn't logical. It's foolishness. It's scandalous. But I'm so glad it's true. Keep your mysteries, God. Just save me. Keep your mysteries, God. Just be good to me and keep every promise you've ever made. I don't have to think I'm you. I don't have to try to assume or presume I could know everything you know. I'm happy to just be a child sitting at your feet and I'll just take whatever, whatever you want to explain to me is great and I'll spend the rest of my time with my hands held up and just worship. That's where we belong. God would be powerful if he could declare all of the events of past, present, and future and then cause them to come to pass by his power. He'd be powerful, right? If somebody, if somebody could start out before time, just declare everything by the counsel of their will, and then take a hold of all of the events of history and force them and coerce them by their might into the exact mold that they spoke 
That's power. That's, you, are you anywhere close to that? We still got the God of the universe there. We still got numero uno, right? Most high. But to think that part of his eternal and sovereign declaration was that humans would have a functioning will and he still weaves all past, present, and future events into a beautiful tapestry where not one thread is out of place. This is a God of such unimaginable might and power that the only proper response is to fall before him in humble exaltation, letting our questions and doubts melt away in the radiant heat of his glory. David did sin with Bathsheba. God did not force that. God does not do that. And yet, somehow, God worked all... Joseph's brothers threw him in a pit and sold him into slavery. God knew that would happen. God did not cause that to happen. But by the eternal decree of his will, he knew that the good he was going to work out of that sinful choice by his brothers, that he was going to save his special family. He knew David was going to look lustfully across the veranda and see that woman bathing and have her husband killed as a result. And yet God knew that out of David's sinful choice, the good he was going to work is that if you trace the family lineage, it's Solomon, and on down you get all the way to the end, Jesus Christ himself comes out of that lineage. Whoo! Now... Let me help you. Why does this matter? Because some of you are worried that you've ruined God's plan for your life with all your sin. Oh, oh, dear one. <laughs> no. You can't. He's too big for that. And some of you have gotten lazy in your obedience to God thinking, well... He's going to do what he wants anyways. And you're kicking against the goads of the resounding, unified message of the scriptures that though God is sovereign, you are responsible. It matters. This matters a lot. The hope, friends, is that we leave here today with our brains feeling mushy, but our hearts feeling full. May it be so for his glory and for our good. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. God, I thank you that you're not scared. <laughs> you're not scared to, within 16 verses, <laughs> present David talking about the things he's done and using language as if his choices and responsibility were a part of what made it happen. And then in the very same breath, say that it is you. God, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how to spell all that out for somebody or make it all make sense. But God, I don't need it to make sense in my mind. I humbly acknowledge my position. A mere human with a finite mind. I am not you. We are not you. And we celebrate wholeheartedly that fact. That there is much <laughs> that you know, that you do, that you say that is far beyond what we can fit into a box we feel comfortable with. Thank you. 
that you don't succumb to our desire to try to tame you or make you understandable or make you palatable. Thank you that you are God and we are not. Your ways are high and far above our ways. We exalt you, Lord. We ask you to continue, God, to bathe us in the radiant glory of your goodness, your might, your sovereignty. Thank you that you are the grand weaver. Thank you that we can't undo your purposes. But I thank you that also, by the decree of your sovereign will, you have made us creatures that can, that can love you for real, <laughs> that can obey you or not. I thank you that, God, you've done what seems to our minds to be impossible, but it's created this situation that leaves open the possibility of this beautiful future you've painted for us where we can be with you forever, that we can have genuine love with you forever. It's us and you. Thank you for all that you've done to bring us to that. Thank you that you've included us in the mission, in our time and in our day. You've not just swept us up into the glory of redemption, but you've called us to be ambassadors of reconciliation, that you've not only called us to receive this good word, but to share it and to pour it forth in the way we live and in the way we speak. Thank you, God, that it does matter if we live on mission in our homes. It does matter if we live on mission in our jobs. Wherever we are, whatever we're doing, you've set this up so that we get to participate in what you're doing, and it matters. Thank you. Thank you for trusting us. Thank you for including us. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for being patient and kind and long-suffering with us. Thank you, God. I pray for every single person that's here tonight, every single person that encounters this teaching later. God, may we, may we not let the difficulty of grasping these concepts lead us to confusion or angst, but God, may it lead us to worship. May it lead us to joy. May it lead us to rest in the might of your hand. The unquestioned totality of your sovereignty. <laughs> we rejoice in it tonight, God. Thank you for the freedom that comes in trusting you instead of ourselves. We love you. We magnify you. We lift you high. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.